Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. We are so excited to bring you season two of Buildings and Beyond. To start out this season, I will be speaking with Timothy McDonald. In 1997, Tim and his brother founded Onion Flats, a Philadelphia-based real estate design, development, and build firm. Tim and Onion Flats have been on a bit of a sustainability journey over the past two decades, and his experience is invaluable to anyone who considers themselves in the design, construction, or sustainability industries. Tim takes a design thinking approach to development. Each new project is building on the lessons learned from the previous project and taking us a step or two closer to net positive impact. I start out by asking Tim what he thinks are the top three things developers, designers, and builders should think about when trying to design quality, efficient, affordable housing. Tim does an excellent job of describing his perspective, so let's just dive right in. Well, I guess the first one is related to who we are as a company, and I think that's pretty important uh, because we're a vertically integrated company. We're, we're developers, architects, and builders, which means ultimately that we control the process from beginning to end. And I think that that's how quality uh, really happens. I think that um, being a vertically integrated company allows us to uh, build more cost effectively because there just aren't as many layers that uh, need liability uh, to slow us down or to cost us more money. And I think we're more agile and nimble as a company. If we run into problems, we, we turn them into opportunities um, rather than uh, change orders, which cost more money. We actually uh, make a problem cost less money. Uh, so I think that that's the first thing. The first thing is that uh, to be a vertically integrated company um, is is just really helpful in doing any kind of architecture. I think the second one is that you really just have to be committed to a particular definition of what sustainability is. You just have to you have to want it and you have to be committed to it. And for us, uh, for the over the past ten years sustainability is no longer a kind of general generalized uh, sense it's really focused primarily on climate change because it is the it is the existential threat that we all face and um, it, it is the focus of all of our work and because of that we've been looking for the right tool to uh, allow us to design and build buildings that are cost effective, that don't contribute carbon to the environment. And for us, that's Passive House. So um, to me, it's about uh, when you find the right tool, you, you work with that, which doesn't mean that our sense of sustainability doesn't also include issues around water and transportation and indoor air quality and so forth. But but I, I would say if you want to know what we're about, that is the focus for the next, until we're gone, um, that's the focus of our work. And I guess the third one 
might be that um, we, we just really believe that you, there are two ways to, to get the word out about the significance of this issue of climate change and how buildings contribute to it. And that is either you, you demonstrate it through your own work and then you go share that uh, as much as you possibly can or you um, legislate it. You get it, you get it changed. You get building codes changed. You, you work with affordable housing agencies, which is what with this initiative that we started about four or five years ago to get not so much legislation, but the way that affordable housing gets funded. Uh, we worked really hard on that. So, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are two parts of what we do. One is that we're uh, advocates of this and we uh, of this kind of work and we go around the country to try and talk about it as much as possible and then we demonstrate it with our own work right and uh thanks by the way for sharing uh sharing this to all of our listeners yeah yeah sure. advocating uh getting the word out that way so um how did you come to the passive house standards specifically were there other standards that you looked at or tried and yeah. Um, kind of what were you, what were your thoughts around yeah, that? Yeah, so we so the first project where we took on any notion of sustainability was in two thousand and one or two, I believe, and we weren't really educated in sustainability as a as a kind of guiding practice. Um, and then we bu we built this project uh, called Rag Flats, which you know, for us, sustainability was um, doing our first PV system. It was about collecting rainwater. It was about uh, a kind of urban planning approach to a community which uh, talked about social sustainability. Um, after that, we discovered LEED. And in about 2004, we built the first LEED Gold project in the city. Uh, after that, we built the first lead platinum projects, uh, some of the first in the country. And I think that was really important for us because what we loved at the time about lead was the, the structure of accountability. Right. And it, it allowed us to address the multifaceted dimensions of, of sustainability that you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily be able to um, kind of holistically put together on your own. So it was. It made us better architects. It made us better builders. It made us more aware of what was important. And then we began to realize after we did that for a while that pretty much all of what LEED was about was just naturally built into our work. So we would never, we would never not buy a, a dual flush toilet again. Right. You know, you'd never not. Um, use sealants or caulks that had VOCs in them or paints um, because they were readily available. So there wasn't a lot of work that we discovered except around the area of energy. And this is when we came to discover uh, Passive House in light of, and this is about, uh, about 10 years ago. Um, it was also the time when at least we started to become more aware of climate change and, and built uh, architecture's uh, contribution to that. So, so it's really been an organic pr 
process of learning um, about sustainability and what's important. And Passive House is just the, I mean, we're at a crisis. And so, you know, uh, I, I'm much more interested in, in um, radically reducing energy consumption. Um, I will always also try to manage stormwater, mm-hmm. but if I'm not required and there's a line, there's some, there's a, I have to choose between where my money goes, it's always gonna go towards uh, energy conservation because of the impacts on, on the environment. Right, and that kind of circles back to, I think it was your second point about having a focus, that yeah. this, this is what you're going after, so anytime you have to weigh those two options, yeah. you know where you're going. Exactly. That's great. And um, I know you talk a lot, uh, or at least have given some presentations about uh, the cost of, of building these really efficient buildings, and maybe it doesn't have to be more expensive to build a more efficient building. Right. Can you talk a little bit about uh, kind of what you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, I, the way I like to put it is, forget about Passive House for a second. If you went out and just got bids on a code-built multifamily building, you'd have a wide range of prices, right? So it's very difficult to say it doesn't cost more or it does cost more. What I like to say is that it can cost more and it doesn't have to cost more. And the the first way to make sure that you hone in and control the cost of a project have to do with how you're structured as a company. And if you're structured and how we, uh, how we actually get buildings built, and if it's built, and if buildings are designed and built in this classic design, bid, build approach, I think it's extremely problematic because, because all that ends up happening is you design a project, you put it out to bid, it comes back too expensive, and they do this wonderful thing called value engineering, which essentially part. strips everything out of the project. I, we, we work exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. We, we have the builder, us, right. um, in the room the exact day before any drawings are done. We set goals for what we're trying to achieve. We develop uh, uh, strategies for mechanical systems before drawings are done, before we even start drawings. So it's all about building the uh, strategies around uh, construction, around insulation, around air sealing, around des- uh, larger issues of design, like or urban issues, issues about community. Establishing them first, having all the players, engineers, architects, subcontractors, uh, GC, uh, not so much the bank, but the owner, in the room at the same time and then going from there because i can't tell you how many times we've worked in the other structure with kind of the typical arrangement where you've got an owner you've got that hires the architect the architect designs the building then gives the building to the engineer then the engineer designs mechanical system that is not integrated with the architecture and then there's redoing of that um, and then, and then there are contractors that haven't done that kind of work. So when it gets to the bidding process, their numbers are jacked up because it's because it's a new process. And Scary. So, yeah. So the main the main way that we 
When, when we say it doesn't have to cost more money, the main way we achieve that is by having an, uh, an integrated team. Great. And, and it's interesting you're talking about that. I think the industry talks about an integrated process a lot, yeah. but we don't necessarily get there. No. It's sort of the lead requires an integrated process meeting. Right. And so we have the meeting and yep. then that's, And then what? Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that's interesting that your, your perspective on kind of you're so fully integrated across yeah. the three um, uh, entities there yeah. that you can really be doing this on a continuous basis. It's not an integrated design meeting. It's mm -hmm. really an integrated design process. Absolutely. That's and, great. And again, this issue of value engineering is a perfect example of the failure of the design bid build process because we have a similar thing that happens as we're going through the process all the way through the construction process. Right. But I really mean it when I say we hit those roadblocks and we're able to step back and come up with an alternative solution that is very often, if not always, less expensive. Right. That we couldn't have foreseen in the process. Now, that doesn't happen when, it, when somebody's got a contract to do the mechanical system and they say, well, you know, this was missing in the drawings. Uh, you're just, it's just going to cost more to do what you're doing. I have to retool. Right. And that just doesn't happen with us. Right. And what we see a lot in, uh, you know, with my role in building commissioning is that there'll be sort of side deals between the mechanical contractor and the yeah. GC or between the mechanical contractor and the owner that the owner doesn't even really fully understand what's missing through this value engineering. All they see is that dollar figure. Exactly. So you can have, you really have a better understanding of all of the different systems so you can make an educated decision when someone comes to you with that sort of. And I'm sure you've experienced the more insidious uh, structures where maybe the, the GC isn't all that interested ultimately in the kind of energy efficiency that you are. And so he or she is doing everything they can to kind of undermine uh, whether whether the project goes in that direction or not, in ver sometimes very subtle ways and sometimes really obvious ways, to the point where the owner gets scared and says, where the developer, I mean, the GC says, you know what, I'm much more used to working with these mechanical systems. I've got, I've got a real problem with this new system that these people are talking about. Scares the owner, and then all of a sudden the team starts to fragment. So that's why it's not just got to be an integrated team, but everybody's got to be committed to the same goal. Right. That's a really interesting point. And I think something that I didn't understand when I first started in the industry, how even when we say, oh, the GC and the owner, maybe they're the same team. Sometimes you really have them operating as two separate entities Absolutely. within the company and definitely within different companies you might have. So how do we orient everybody towards the same goal? So how do you do that with subcontractors and other vendors and things like that? How do you really kind of show them your vision and orient them towards your same goal? Um, it, in some ways, the, you, you, have to, you have to choose. So for instance, it, it's not that hard when it comes to drywall. Right, I don't. I don't need to tell the Tell my drywall guy the vision for the project. Um, in other ways, it's really just about uh, really good project management. So, for instance, when you 
when you hire an insulation contractor and you say it's a uh, it's a blown cellulose, right? Dense packed cellulose, or even mineral wool in the walls. There are ways to put insulation in that don't take any more time or any more money, and then there are ways to put it in where there are gaps, and and so it's all about having the right people watching the project very carefully and just keeping people honest and and uh, doing the work that they're supposed to do. Um, you know, I, I've, I've found that the more you don't talk, and this is gonna sound very strange, the more you don't talk about how unique this building is, mm -hmm. the, the better, the, the better, uh, the more cost-effective your construction budgets are gonna be and the better work you get. And I know that sounds strange, but if I were to tell my framer that this is a passive house project and it's one of the most energy efficient buildings in the world and it's extremely unique, all of a sudden that subcontractor starts getting scared and maybe he doesn't understand what is going into it. Maybe he's missed something in the drawing. So all of a sudden he puts a little extra in his, in his budget. Passive house adder. Exactly. So I, I, try, to, I try to actually... This is going to sound weird too, but I try not to sit down and in those meetings try to describe how unique this is. Mm -hmm. I just sit down and I say, okay, this is our air barrier and this is how we handle the air barrier. Every time you puncture this air barrier, this is what you do. Got it? Yes. Okay. Move on. Oh, okay. Just really straightforward stuff. Yeah. It's just, it's just, here's the process of putting this building together. Here are the joints that need to be dealt with. Right. Here are the things that really matter when it comes to the energy efficiency of the building. And here are the things that don't. The kitchen and uh, uh, floor finishing people and the tile people, they don't have to right. be a part of the vision. It's really, you really have to identify the critical subs that need to know and only on a need to know basis do <laughs> they need to know. Right, right, that's really interesting. And it actually, it brings up an interesting um, question in my mind of uh, kind of performance-based spec versus uh, prescriptive spec. You yes. kind of talked a little bit about that. I don't. Do you have some thoughts? It looks like you maybe do. Well, I just I just think it's silly that it's not performance-based. Mm -hmm. I mean, why the hell can't we just give a miles per gallon approach to a building mm -hmm. in the same way that we do to cars and forget about energy codes? Just mm -hmm. say, just say this is how much energy your building needs to uh, consume. It can't consume any more. What are you going to do? You can do anything you want to make this happen. I don't need to tell you what your R values are for your walls. You're going to figure that out. Right. I don't need to tell you what your minimum this or minimum that is. You're going you're gonna to figure it out very quickly because you're going to have to do an energy model and you're going to have to make these numbers work. So, um, so from a design performance, I believe in design performance base rather than prescriptive. And then the, the other performance side of things is how it actually happens. Mm -hmm. Like what actually happens? What happens when people move in? Mm -hmm. I like to say that your job is only half done when you build the building. The other half is about educating um, the tenants or the owners of your, of your buildings uh, following up with them, understanding how their behavior has changed or not changed and how that's affecting their perf the performance of their building. Um, 
So, I mean, I, those are my thoughts. Yeah, great. And it's interesting in contrast a little bit to how you were talking about um, how you're presenting things to your subcontractors. You're not necessarily saying to them, this is the performance spec for your whole building air barrier. This is You're giving them sort of a prescriptive approach. But from the design side, you're taking more of a... Right. Is that accurately I guess, representing I guess. what you said? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing this long enough to know that... Um, Again, the the uh, so part of this has to do. I, I'm I'm making a couple of assumptions. So mm-hmm. when it comes to um, you know critical subs, the framers are a critical sub. Mm-hmm. But I've already taken a lot of the um, the questions out of the equation for the for the sub because I'll never not work with a prefabricated wall system anymore. Oh, okay. So I work with a panelized system that has the air barrier built in, that has the exterior insulation already on, that has the WRB already on, and that has the windows and doors already installed. Okay. So, um, so all they so, need is to seal those pieces yes, together. Yes, so, so, so I think that that the kind of broader context of that is about understanding how we need to change the way we build buildings in general because we're still building buildings one stick at a time the way we've been doing for a hundred years and we need to find ways to uh, become more industrialized around how we do it. So I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of um, the idea of modular building, the idea of panelization, the idea of, of eliminating uh, all of these typical areas where where failures can occur and they shouldn't have to. So that's the other part of this is that is that you have to rethink how you build right. if you're going to do it cost effective. That also relates to being cost effective. Right. Because not only do I not want to trust guys to install windows on my site and have them airtight, right. um, I don't want them to take the time to do that. So it, it takes less time to build these buildings if you think through these processes uh, in a more effective way, and it, and it costs less money. Right. So it's actually interesting how you brought that up because I think it, you're almost saying, well, if you were to build a, a passive house by just doing exactly what you've been doing and yeah. adding a couple inches of insulation, yeah. that's going to cost more. Right. And it's going to be less, it'll be more difficult. Maybe you take up more floor space. Yep. But if you take a step back and reimagine the whole thing, absolutely. now we can get to a better place. Yep. Mechanical systems are another perfect example. Yeah. Let's get into right? that. So you can, I mean, I can't tell you how many engineers that I've worked with where they run their ductworks in a passive house building, they run their ducts all the way to the exterior wall. Right, they're heating and cooling or ventilation ducts, and I say you don't have to do that. You just pop it into the building, uh, uh, pop it into the room. You you can save twelve or fifteen feet of ductwork. Oh, I I can't do that. Well, why can't they do that? Because they're used to having cold walls, mm-hmm. and so they've got to wash those cold walls with heat in right. the in the winter time. And so there's this there's this thinking that uh, you have to break through. Um, uh, when it comes to mechanical systems, for sure, where you could just say, oh, engineers would say, oh my God, this is going to cost so much more money because I've got to have this dedicated air system, this ERV, HRV, that's separate from the heating and cooling, my God. And there are ways to design it 
that are cost effective and ways to, to design it where it's twice as much. Right. Right. And so I spend a lot of time and I do a lot of research on how I can cost effectively do three things, heating and cooling, ventilation and hot water, because those can be twice as much if you do them in the wrong way. Right. Right. So um, there are systems now, they're just becoming available mm -hmm. where you've got, especially for apartments, small apartments, where you've got heating, cooling and ventilation all built into one, one unit with no condenser to the roof, the condenser is built into the unit. So just imagine all that cop those copper line sets that you would run for a mini split to an apartment, which everybody thinks is the cheapest way to go. And spend isn't. a fortune on the copper. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Isn't anymore. Great. So yeah. And you have worked with these uh, packaged units? Right now, I'm working with them. I'm installing you're building 20, right now. 28 of them. Great. Yeah. And uh, in, I guess, how did you get to that? Did you ever think about using central systems yep. and and did you did you try that and yep. have some tears? Yep. <laughs> exactly. We just built and it's literally about 200 feet away from where we're sitting uh, a geo centralized geothermal heating, cooling and hot water system for a 25 unit apartment building. And it's great in theory, but um, ultimately What's pushed me away from that is the complexity of it all. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, without going into detail about it, there, the, the idea of having one unit in an apartment that does all things, if it breaks down, you just go and fix it. Right. If my geothermal pump stops, 25 apartments go down. Right. If my VRF system loses pressure in the in the uh, line sets in the in the refrigerant lines the whole thing goes down right so um, it was a great experiment and every single project we've ever done for the past 22 years has been an experiment and I hope uh, you know we keep making mistakes but they keep getting smaller yeah and so um, so it's ironic that I thought, three years ago that this centralized approach to uh, multifamily housing, especially when you're building passive houses, including the electric. Why have individual meters when you've got utility bills that are like 20 bucks a month? Like what? And if you've got PV to cover that, why would you have a separate room for just the just the individual meters? So centralized electrical meters, centralized systems. I thought this was the bees knees. This is what I'd be repeating for the next 20 years. Well, I'm not. Now I'm going, <laughs> now I'm going decentralized. Okay. And, and probably in a couple more years, I'll have more evidence about the value of one versus another. And they'll all continue to work. But um, that's what keeps me excited. Yeah. There's always something new to learn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's actually really interesting because we've also been looking at what looking at real data, basically. I think in the right. existing building world, people have gotten on board with, okay, how's this building performing after we make an upgrade? Right. But in the new construction world, we're really not holding our GCs, owners, and um, developing development teams 
accountable for the actual performance of the building. Kind of like what you said, your job really isn't done. And that's music to my ears as commissioning person. Right. Turnover is sort of our big time frame. Right. So if we look at um, actual performance, how are these buildings that are so efficient really working in the real world? Mm -hmm. And one thing that we found that I think is so interesting and just want to put out there to the industry, so this is my uh, mountaintop, I guess. Um, we've been seeing in New York City, we love PTACs for some reason. Architects sure. hate them. Uh, developers, a lot of developers love yeah. them. Um, and we've been saying these are giant holes in the walls. How mm -hmm. are we going to account for that? What Are these really you know, performing well? Rated efficiencies are, are pretty low. Um, but based on some, some buildings that we've started to look at data for, comparing the, you know, the gas PTAC, so it's an 80% efficient gas furnace. Clients are anecdotally telling us, and we're looking at some data now that indicates that actually maybe they're performing better than your giant central VRF system in some cases. And so this sort of decentralized, you turn it on only when you need it, you pay for it kind of system um, that doesn't have distribution losses and doesn't have also the opportunity to leak, by the way, refrigerants that are mm -hmm. a greenhouse gas in and of themselves. Absolutely. Um, then, you know, actually maybe that's that's the way. Well, I, you, I'm putting this out there. It's an idea, and everybody, my dad used to say ideas are like noses. Everybody's got one. <laughs> uh, it's all about what you do with it. But I have been, my next uh, kind of project that I'm going to take on is I'm going to create the next level. We don't even have a magic box yet mm -hmm. in the U.S. And a mm -hmm. magic box, for those of you who don't know, is a it's about the size of a refrigerator. It's in Europe, some country, some countries in Europe, but it's for small houses and apartments. But it's about the size of a refrigerator. It's got a heat pump in it. It does heating, it does cooling, it does ventilation, and it does hot water. Now, what that tells me is, why wouldn't we have a system that eliminates all the heat pumps in our apartments? Because there are more. Mm -hmm. I've got a refrigerator that has a heat pump. Right. I've got a dryer that has a heat pump. I've got uh, a potentially a stove not so much a stove that's a heat pump, but I've got, <laughs> but there are at least two more heat yeah. pumps in an apartment. So I have this idea for a, for an invention that essentially takes a heat a magic box and then sends refrigerant to to another box, which is called mm -hmm. a refrigerator. Sends a refrigerant to another box, which is called a, which is called a dryer. So we we've got to start thinking much more integrally and in a small way about the spaces that we live in and about the amount of mechanical equipment that we have. And I don't think Passive House is there yet because they're still dealing with separate ventilation systems from heating and cooling systems, separate separate heat pumps all over the place. Right. So I think we, there's a lot of room for invention uh, when it comes to the mechanical systems. But I, I, I don't... I'm not surprised that a PTAC works. Do you know that our first Passive House project, you're going to be, uh, people who have seen me present know this, but we took a PTAC because we couldn't find anything cost effective to work with in, a, in an affordable housing, three townhomes. We took a PTAC and instead of putting it through the wall, mm -hmm. we put it on the third floor and we insulate, we ducted it. 
We ducted the supply to the building and ducted the supply from the outside, ducted and super insulated the ducts. And then we tied that into an ERV. So we made this little, we made this kind of Frankenstein-esque mechanical system out of a PTAC and it's been working beautifully. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, when you get creative. When you get creative, yeah. No, I wouldn't do that again. uh, (laughs) We have some other solutions now. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And um, so we kind of got to this point, but um, when we have you back on the podcast in five years, uh, what are we going to be talking about then? Uh, Well, that's a good question. My kid's going to college. (laughs) That'll Um, be good. Yeah. No, I think we'll have... They'll invent the magic box. Right. So we're, we are in a, our company is in a, um, a real push over the next five years to develop property that we've owned for a while. And we've got plans on all of them. And there's at the moment about another hundred and about 200 units that we're going to be developing over the next three years, actually. And so in five years, not only will they be built, but we'll be able to really talk about performance and where we got things right, where we got things wrong. Um, We're also, we've also just broken into uh, um, the kind of client realm that is interested in this stuff at a very large scale, which I can't really talk about, but within five years, this very large-scale building in Philadelphia, I hope, is going to be here, and I hope it's going to be a passive house, and I hope it's going to be a net-zero energy building. And I hope it's then when uh, the industry itself will uh, not begin. I hope they'll be, they'll be far along the way. I hope the industry within five years is going to say, yeah, this isn't an option anymore, and we've there have been plenty of people demonstrating that this is not only possible, but it's intelligent. And so it won't be a crisis. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that what we're talking about here is standard practice. That's what I hope. That's awesome. And a really yeah. good and hopeful note to end on. There you so go. thank you so much for coming in. My and pleasure. Being part yeah. Of the Anytime. Thank you for listening to Buildings and Beyond. For more information about the topics discussed today, visit www.swinter.com slash podcast and check out the episode show notes. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We provide energy, green building, and accessibility consulting services to improve the built environment. Our professionals have led the way since 1972 in the development of best practices to achieve high-performance buildings. Our production team for today's episode includes Dylan Martello, Alex Mirable, and myself, Heather Breslin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.